And she said, well, I just had a dream that you gave me a diamond necklace for Valentine's Day. What do you think it means? And her husband said, well, you'll find out tonight. So that evening when he got home, with a small package, he gave it to her. And very excited, she opened it up only to find a book entitled The Meaning of Dreams. <laughs> uh, Valentine's is better than that. <laughs> anyway, as always, nothing to do with anything, but okay. For most of you. Yeah. Well, last week we ended with the picture of Babylon's demonic system, which will be responsible for the uh, countless deaths of believers during the tribulation. The revived Roman Empire will be rebellious and defiant as really pictured in Babel of old and Babylon. It's a symbol of mankind's defiance from the get-go when they went to build power to heaven, make a name. There will be satanic dogma practiced at this time at a level we can't imagine, as well as incredible wealth and sensuality that will dominate the world. But just before the second coming of Christ, this rebuilt Babylon with its mammoth commercial center will suddenly be destroyed, according to Revelation 18.2. And so as we move into this chapter, it's more of God's judgment on the nations. We've been studying these visions of Zechariah over many weeks. Can you imagine what a long night it was for Zechariah? He got them all in one night. And all about the future of Israel's history and the Gentile nations. This final vision is about uh, to reveal God's judgment on the nations. Again, but here it's seen by war chariots that are go up throughout the earth. And after these visions, the high priest Joshua would be crowned. And this would be the foreshadowing then of the Messiah, who will ultimately be crowned both priest and king at his return. So our study today is the culmination of the night visions. And it reveals to us the prophetic events of the, that the Messiah will perform. So I remind you of the big picture of what we've been seeing all along, all these weeks since we started, uh, is that God is going to deal with judgment with all the nations and how, in many ways, for their sin, how they treated Israel, and then also the future hope that God has for Israel. So that's kind of a big picture of everything. So don't be concerned about all the confusing details. So let's go on to the vision of the four chariots. Now I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between two mountains, and the mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot were red horses, the second chariot black horses, with the third chariot white horses, with the fourth chariot strong dappled horses. Then I spoke and said to the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel replied to me, these are the four spirits of heaven, going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth, with each of which the black horses are forth to the north. They were eager to patrol the earth. See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. There's a similarity here between the first and eighth visions, and yet they are distinct. You may recall in the first vision, back the first chapter we were doing, that there were horsemen who were sent to patrol the earth and evaluate the Gentile world that was living in peace. In the eighth vision here, there are horse-drawn chariots, and they arrive with implements of war and judgment. The horses are similar in both visions, but there are differences in their color. Remember in the first vision, the horses were standing in a ravine among the myrtle trees? 
But in this vision, they come out from between two mountains of bronze. Some have said these mountains are Zion and Olivet. Obviously, they're not actual mountains since they're made of bronze. You may recall that when God dealt in judgment with Israel, remember it was a bronze serpent held up when the people sinned against the Lord, and the feet of the Messiah in Revelation 1 are described in that vision of, of him like fine brass or bronze, as he has the power to judge his enemies. So bronze has often been used in scripture to speak of judgment. The picture of the two bronze mountains seems to speak of God's universal judgment about to happen. The colors of the horses are really not explained to us in Zechariah, but we get some light on them from Revelation chapter 6 where we read, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The red horse went out, and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hands a quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, speaking of famine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen, or a sickly pale horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him, and a fourth of the earth was killed with sword, famine, and pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. So these horses that we see here and again in Revelation travel in different directions. And though, though there's no dappled horse mentioned in Revelation, it may represent the plagues and the pestilence being poured out on the earth. Like us, Zechariah asks, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answers that these horses represent four spirits or winds of heaven who go out from where they have been stationed before the Lord of all the earth. These are angelic beings that are ministers of God, and they're assigned to bring judgment to the defiant and rebellious nations of the world just before the return of Christ. We see in verse 7 that the strong ones are the horses, and they are very eager to patrol the earth. God gives them their mission by commanding them to walk to and fro throughout the earth, making ready the soon coming judgment. This is a mission God has determined, and it will happen. God calls out to Zechariah, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. So judgment will be executed on the nations, and this verse anticipates this future day of the Lord's judgment during the Great Tribulation. God will destroy the evil system of Babylon, which we touched on last week, as well as the enemies of Israel, and then and only then will God's spirit be appeased and have rest. These horrific judgments are seen throughout Revelation, particularly 17 through 19, until finally we read in chapter 19, verse 2, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. So these are all events that must happen before God's wrath can rest. And the Messianic kingdom will then begin with Christ on the throne. So the conclusion of the night visions is seen in 9 through 15. Receive the gift from the captives who have come from Babylon, and go the same day and enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, 
Specific names are given here as these gift bearer comes, come, who are former uh, Jewish captives, who apparently didn't return to Jerusalem with Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. So it's a Jewish delegation, and they are bringing an offering of gold and silver in order to help in the restoration of the temple. Verse 11, take the silver and gold and make an ornate crown, ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua the son of Jehazadek the high priest. Then say to him, thus says the Lord, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. The word crown used here is plural. Zechariah is told to make an elaborate crown from the silver and gold brought by these men and then to put it on the head of the high priest. This would not have been for Zerubbabel, as he was simply a governor. No king in the history of Israel was to serve as king and priest. Do you remember the trouble Uzziah got into when he thought he'd take on a priestly role? And God struck him with leprosy until he spent the rest of his life in that condition. Many believe this is a double-ringed crown. That's the picture of the priestly and kingly crown that the Messiah will wear at his coronation. We see in verse 14 that this crown will be kept in the temple for a memorial and a reminder. Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord for Halem, Tobijai, Jediah, and Hen. It has been <clears throat> it had been brought for the restoration of the temple, and it was to remind the nation of the truth that one day their Messiah will come. He will be crowned their king and their priest. Of Israel. So even though this crown was placed on the head of Joshua the high priest, it was a symbol of a future crowning of Israel's Messiah, or the branch, who combines both office of priest and king. Verse 12 says, Thus the Lord of hosts, behold, a man, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. So Zechariah is told to give this message to the high priest. We have already seen the Messiah referred to as branch. It's a title used for him four times. This branch will branch out. Remember, at his first coming, Isaiah described him as a tender shoot or plant. But he will shoot upward and a branch out as strong as a fast-growing plant that grows to great heights. <clears throat> we also see this branch shall build the temple of the Lord. This is a reference to the millennial temple that Jesus himself will make happen after his second coming, according to Ezekiel 40 through 42. This is not speaking of the temple that Zerubbabel and the people were working on. This Messiah branch is <clears throat> he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So, Jesus the Messiah is clothed in majesty, reflecting the glory of God, and he will rule on his throne as priest and king. Satan and his demons will no longer have their control, and Messiah reclaims the whole planet as, his, as rightful creator and redeemer. Remember, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We met him in Genesis briefly and then in Hebrews 7. Today, Jesus functions as priest seated at the right hand of God. In the millennium, the Messiah branch will function as king-priest, bringing peace to the world. Notice the exciting truth seen in verse 15. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. 
so this is talking about a time in the millennium where men for all the Gentile nations of the world hard were killed have come to believe will bring gifts to Jerusalem that will be used to construct the millennial temple the nations will bring their wealth to Jerusalem and the whole world will know that God the Father sent the Messiah to the nation of Israel these events will happen if you completely obey the Lord it says these events it's not saying they're based on conditions but rather those individuals who participate in the millennial kingdom will be blessed because of their obedience that's certainly nothing new as a concept is it this has always been the way of peace and blessing when we obey the gospel accounts about Jesus really do correspond to Jesus the Messiah as the branch think about it I will raise to David a branch of righteousness a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness on the earth the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the righteous king then you go to the book of Mark the Messiah branch is identified as the servant of the Lord that's the theme of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus said in Mark 10 45 for even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many it's similar to all the references seen regarding the Messiah in Isaiah's 42 49 and so on then the branch is fully man as seen in the book of Luke the man whose name is branch is described in Luke's gospel account and then fourth the branch is fully God as Isaiah calls him the branch of the Lord this is the message of John in the Gospel of John that Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God <clears throat> as we finish up these eight prophetic visions I remind you again they are all simply an overview of the plan of God for Israel's future giving a hope to the nation that one day their Messiah will come he will be crowned their their king and their priest he will fulfill everything that he has promised and judgment will happen to all the nations what amazing truths for us to see as we wait the culmination of God's plans for this world this is where it's all going I mean we're in the timeline a little blip but this is where this world is heading and the events to come <clears throat> and yet that concept of those who are far off are given the opportunity to be included in God's plan of redemption I love this our chapter today speaks of a future time when those who are far off will be coming to bring worship and part of bringing worship to the Messiah but even now in the church age Paul speaks such similar words to us in the book of Ephesians remember uh, Paul says that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ what an amazing truth I pray that that is a reality in the lives of each one of you here no one can be brought near to God by their religious exercises or efforts or association or keeping up with particular religious duties the only way is through faith in the blood of Christ who made the ransom payment for sinners like you and me and that kind of brings us into the flow of the next set of questions about religious rituals when it comes to fasting the hypocrisy and false fasting so the request comes from these people in the first three verses of chapter 7 in the fourth year of King Darius the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month which is Chislev 
Now the town of Bethel had sent Shazar, Regimelech, and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, speaking to the priests who belonged to the house of the Lord of hosts and to the prophets, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain, as I have done these many years? So we read about a delegation who comes from Bethel, arrives at Jerusalem to get counsel from the priests and prophets, whether they have to keep on with this annual feast, remembering the destruction of the temple, because the temple is being rebuilt, so that's the concern. So since the new temple is nearing completion, could they just stop this burdensome ritual of fasting? So in both chapter 7 and next week in 8, God is answering their question on fasting, and Zechariah really gives them four messages. And it's certainly not what they expected to hear, that's for sure. This revelation from the Lord to Zechariah is dated the month of December, 518 B.C. So this is about now 22 months after all those night visions that he received. So the town of Bethel sent these representatives to seek the favor of the Lord. So that's about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. This had been the capital, as you recall, of the northern kingdom. That kingdom involved in such idolatrous, wicked worship who fell to Assyria. Now these two men with Babylonian names were likely exiles born in Babylon while, Ju while they were there from, in exile from Judah. So they come to inquire if it's necessary to keep weeping and fasting over the destruction of the temple and realize this was a self-imposed fast, nowhere commanded in scripture by God. So as the time in, as time in Babylon went on, they just kept adding more things to this. Let's make this a fast day, so we're not going to wash, we're not going to clean, we're not going to do a lot of things. We're just going to weep and mourn and deny ourselves every normal daily involvement of care for yourself. So there was also a fast in the memory of the destruction of the walls. That was in the fourth month. And there was a fast in the seventh month to remember the assassination of one of their kings. So. It's evident by their expression, I have done this for so many years, um, that they wanted to put an end to these ceremonies of fasting and mourning. After all, the temple is being rebuilt. So what they get from Zechariah is an unexpected rebuke. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, you eat for yourselves, and you drink for yourselves. Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, along with its cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Zechariah goes directly to the motive with their fasting. The Lord asked through Zechariah, were you fasting for me? Was this simply a ritual that was really for self? and nothing to do with honoring God. Any fasting done in this way was an external exercise and a waste of time and effort. The prophet Isaiah also addressed Israel on this subject. The people had fasted, but God did not respond to what they wanted. And so they asked God in Isaiah 58, why have we fasted and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? God answers with quite a rebuke to these complaining um, attitudes of people <clears throat> who are complaining that, you know, we fasted, so you should give us what we're asking for. So God gives a lengthy rebuke about their sinful behavior, their lack of compassion for the poor and needy, all the while expecting God to do what they want just because they tacked on fasting to their request. 
while they were in total defiance in their life of obeying his word. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? Do you not drink for yourself? God asked this question to bring out the true motive of their fasting. Both fasting and feasting was about being self-satisfied. It was just for show. It was spiritually empty as God had no part in it. Remember when Samuel said to Saul, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. It's the same thought. Better to obey than to fast. So there must be a spiritual reality of a contrite, humble heart. Otherwise, God has no part in all this spiritual ritual exercise. Zechariah asks his own question in verse 17. Verse 7, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prospered? Israel had received so many warnings to obey God and his word, especially during their times of prosperity. And we all know that is the time when we're the least sometimes sensitive to the Lord because we're doing good and don't need him. But all of their outward religious observances like fasting meant nothing because it wasn't done with being obedient to his revealed word. Israel had been warned time and again, but they did not listen. If these exiles now back in the land would do the same thing and ignore God's word, they would be in danger of bringing themselves under the same things that happened to their forefathers. But if they were obedient to do God's word, they would enjoy peace and prosperity as God had made clear in his law. So what were they going to do? The evidence of whether their religious activities were true and heartfelt from the heart would be seen in how they behaved with other people. Without justice, without kindness, without compassion, religious observances are just hypocrisy and really blasphemy to a holy God. So learn from the past. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice. Practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. So what Zechariah is doing here is reminding this delegation about all of the abuse in their own personal and social relationships that had brought about the discipline of God on their land and on their forefathers. So the Lord makes it clear in these verses that how you treat people is a direct indication of your spiritual standing and how you are with him. He requires justice without partiality. He also demands mercy and compassion for those who are hurting. No one is to take advantage of the poor or the widow or the stranger or the orphan. The law forbids all these plans uh, for these wrong attitudes, these wrong actions, planning for evil or, or revenge or injury whether it's in business dealings or in a personal home life setting or just their community. This is the moral law of God. The moral law of God never changes. How we treat people, you realize, is directly related to our obedience to God. I mean, you can't disconnect it. You can't have an attitude towards someone and think it has nothing to do with your spiritual relationship and fellowship with Christ. The book of James makes it clear the misuse of our tongue that acts like a restless evil with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. It can't be. 
First John 2 reminds us, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. It's the same principle from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He never changes. His law and moral law never changes. In verse 11, Zechariah goes on to list the behavior of their forefathers, how they had failed to respond to the prophets that God sent to warn them of their sin. He says, but they refused to heed. They shrugged their shoulders. Eh. They stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. I mean, this, this whole expression here is a great definition of what we have of inspiration right here, that the Lord of hosts sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Uh, the people had plugged their ears. They had refused to listen to the warnings. They, they made their hearts like flint, resistant to the word of God, like a stone that can't be bent. All of this is what caused the wrath of God to be expressed to Judah through their captivity and enslavement for 70 years in Babylon. The Lord had sent the Holy Spirit to speak through the prophets earlier, making it clear that the source of prophetic truth is inspiration by the Holy Spirit. That's why we're studying Zechariah, because it was inspired by God to speak through Zechariah. Just as 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21 explained. So the disobedience by the people brought sorrow. Verse 13, and just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them, so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate. This reminds me of the truth in Psalm 66:18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God did not listen to the prayers of Israel's crying for help because they had refused to hear God's message and to repent. Like a hurricane, and we saw the evidence of that, and it quickly scatters and moves everything in its path, so Israel was scattered among the nations that they had never known. When the Jewish people were not in their land, you know what happened to their land? It was desolate, it was underdeveloped, it was non-developed. The only time the land of Israel blooms is when the Jewish people are in it. For 1,900 years, this was the case. The return of the Jewish people back in the 20th century brought the land back to a thriving community. You know, before that, it was desolate, it was swamps, mosquito-infested nothingness, stripped bare of trees from all the armies who trampled, trampled through through the years, and no one there was making it a thriving country until Israel came back just in our lifetime, well, some of our lives. <laughs> Not all of our Why was it more? I guess it was more. Anyways, we're reminded in Second Chronicles 36:16. But they mocked the messengers of God. They despised His words and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people. Until there was simply no remedy. You know what, ladies? We all need to hear, heed the warnings found in these verses. We can say we believe God's word and yet do not obey what we are told. And then we are acting just like the Israel, 
what we're talking about and reading about. So guard your own heart to keep sin from making your heart a cold heart of stone that gets very talented at rationalizing away attitudes and actions that you feel justified to have. One can be involved in all kinds of wonderful spiritual disciplines. I mean, fasting should be a part of our spiritual discipline when we're heavy-hearted over an issue, when we need clarity and direction. Jesus said after he would be gone, his, his disciples would return to fasting. That's a wonderful thing, a great discipline. A time in the Word is discipline. Time that you make to be in Bible study is a great discipline. To worship at church and on and on it goes. But if our hearts grow cold and we are treating people without mercy, without compassion, without fairness, without justice, even though we're doing all those things, it means absolutely nothing to God. We would all do well to take heed to apply the warnings given to Israel. We are not the nation of Israel, obviously. But as I said, the moral laws of God apply to all his people for all time. How easy it is to perform all these outward spiritual disciplines in our lives, which may be done to impress others or maybe just make us feel good about ourselves. And yet God doesn't take pleasure in our efforts when we refuse to obey his clear clear commands. I mean, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. That's three off the top of my head. So ask him if there is an area in your life that has become disobedience to his word so that you do not blaspheme God with all your outward spiritual activity. That it's real in your heart because you're right with him. And how you treat people will be reflective of how you are in your relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And it's not easy. And these visions that Zechariah had are not easy to pull apart and understand everything but Lord we thank you that we know there's a future coming an amazing future that all who come to you by faith and repentance over their sin and trust in you for forgiveness of their sin will be a part of this future amazing reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom that we will be there and serving you and being a part of all these events in the future Lord I pray that we would live our lives in light of what our future really is. Our future isn't just these few years that we're on this planet, Lord. We're laying, this is our only opportunity to lay a treasure in heaven. So I pray that we would walk in obedience, that we would not excuse our sin, that we would not justify attitudes and actions that just are plain wrong. Lord, I pray that you will help us to have spiritual disciplines that are completely because of a heart that loves you and wants to obey you. I pray that you will protect us as we go our separate ways and give us understanding, Lord, that we would be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name.